this. So uh, maybe a couple of you guys, put your hand up. A couple of you got in here, I think. Brother Roman will grab a few of those. And so tonight, we, uh, we want to continue our series on uh, rightly dividing the word of truth. And uh, I've enjoyed this study. Uh, anybody else need one? Raise your hand. Anybody else need a copy? All right, Brother Flynn, anybody else? Uh, all right, okay. Brother Albert, did you get one? You with us tonight? Sitting out there in left field, man. <laughs> all right. So tonight I've entitled our Bible study, The Rule of Bible Doctrine. And we've been talking about Bible doctrine. And, uh, and, and so uh, one of the guys, I think Brother Rogan or Brother, Brother uh, Gusslet said, are we having the Lord's table tonight? And I said, no, we're not having the Lord's table tonight. We're having Bible study tonight. So, so I, I put out some things here just to, kind of, uh, just to kind of share a little bit. Now, again, it's a little bit different, but maybe you'll get the idea. It's, you know, I've learned with my wife, how many of you would say you're visual people? Visual, okay, nothing wrong with it. But a lot of people, it's like you have to see it. Now, I, I grew up in the state called Missouri, which is the show me state, you know, and that's the way a lot of people are in the Midwest. I'm, not, you know, kind of like Thomas, you know, unless I see it, I'm not going to believe it. <clears throat> and my wife, is, she's always been that way. She's, she's like, look, you're going to have to show me, put it on paper. And a lot of times when I go to build things and I build it, I have to build it. And then she looks at it and goes, no, nope, I don't like that. I'm like, wait a minute, I already built it. I can't change it now. But so, so I want to talk a little bit about the Bible tonight and the rule when it comes to Bible doctrine. Now, we, we need to understand, even Brother Flynn and I were talking in the office, you know, Bible doctrine, we need to know what we believe. And we've talked about what doctrine is. Doctrine is our beliefs. And, and a lot of Christians today, and I'm not just talking young Christians, I'm talking some people that have been saved for many, many years. You know, when you, you get around them, they, they really don't know how. Now, I, sometimes I think it's this way. You, you know, in a, to some degree, what you believe, but you don't know how to put it into words. Okay, now again, that's not a good scenario either, because we need to be able to talk to people about what we believe. We need to be able to put it into some sort of terminology. And, and again, uh, sometimes you might think, well, I don't know all these theological terms. You, you don't need it. You can put it into layman's terms where people can understand it. And I think that's the way it needs to be. Hopefully, uh, the Lord will help me tonight just to say things the way that, that they need to be said. But when you think about uh, the Bible and Bible doctrines, and of course, I have, I don't know what kind of Bible you have tonight, but, but I, this is just, there, it's not a study Bible, it's a King James Bible. There's no helps, no notes in this Bible. It's just, just the words of God. That's all it is. And that's, when I preach, that's the kind of Bible that I like. To, now, I have study Bibles in my office and in, in my uh, home and things like that. But, but when it comes to the Word of God, it's very important that we understand, and tonight's going to focus on uh, this book, which is really how many books? 66, okay? And sometimes people say, well, do we really have a complete Bible? How do we know that? And that's, that's part of what I want to talk to you about tonight is, and I've entitled it, and you'll see here in just a minute, the rule, okay, of Bible doctrine. Now, as, as we think about it, I want you to see all these books that I have up here, I'm not having a book sale. Um, 
this is, this is just for sake of illustration. Now, how many of you know that when you have our Bible, you have, you have two main sections of our Bible, which is the what? Old Testament, New Testament, okay? So if this is for sake of illustration tonight, now, it didn't have books like this. It was a little different back then. As a matter of fact, do I have a picture there? This, this would be about what you would see, okay? This would be like a part of a scroll or a piece of papyri or something where they would write, and of course you would see how tattered they got because they, they didn't have the printing press and other things like that years and years ago. And if you got your hands on something like this, it was like getting a hold of a piece of gold uh, because this is God's word on these. But as you think about the Old Testament and New Testament, if, if we... If these books represented the books of the Bible, does anybody know how many books there are in the Old Testament? 39 books in the Old Testament. Okay, now, any mathematicians in here, 66 minus 39 is 27, all right? So watch this. So when, if, if starting here, okay, let's say this is the beginning of our Bible, okay, as it's put together in our Bible, Okay, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Okay, so, so these five big books right here, okay, anybody know what these five books are? Pentateuch, Pentateuch all right. So the, these are, you see them up there, these are the books of the, what's the heading up there? The law, okay. So these five books right here, God used who to, to pen these words? Moses, all right. Now these aren't actually uh, Genesis, Exodus, I, these are just, books I, I drug out here for, for sake of illustration, okay? So watch this. You have the five books of the law. Now, if you move on from there, and you can see it up there, you have what are called the books of the prophets, okay? Now, when it comes to the books of the prophets, there are a lot of different ways that these are put together, okay? And what I've, what I've done is I've put them, I'll explain this in just a minute, how the Jewish, the Hebrew Bible is put together, because it's a little different than the way our Bible is put together. But if you notice the prophets, notice the side headings there, the former prophets and the latter prophets, okay? The earlier and the later prophets. Notice here you have, you have Joshua, Judges, 2 Samuel, First and Second Kings. That would be this grouping here. This would be the, the former prophet books, okay? Then this would be the latter prophet books. Now, you say, well, there's a whole stack there. Well, if you look at the list there, notice Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, that's three, but what does it say under that? The 12, okay? So this would be all of those, what, what we would call minor prophets in our Bible, okay? And so, you know, Obadiah and Jonah and Micah and Nahum and Habakkuk and all those types of books, okay? Then, then you have what is called the writings, okay? So notice you have the law, the prophets, and the writings. And, and as you look at this, the way their Bible was put together, notice you have the book of Psalms, and then you have, notice the pre-exilic writings. Does anybody know what the word exilic means? The exile. In other words, before they went into what? Captivity, okay? So these are the books that you find during that time period. You see the book of Job there, Proverbs, and that, that would be what these books right here represent. And then these right here represent the after the captivity, the post-exilic writings, and then you can see those that are right there. So this would be how they would have seen the books in their Bible. 
Now, in the New Testament, if we're talking about how our Bible came together, we have four books, then we have one book, then we have a whole pile right here, and we have one book here, okay? So what's the last book in the New Testament? Revelation. Revelation. It's a book of what? Prophecy, okay? The first four books are the gospel records, okay? Now notice in that same column, you have one book of what? Well, one book of history, okay? One book of history. So right here, this stack here, now it, again, the way it's worded on this, this isn't something I did. Notice it says letter by Paul, general letters. A lot of times, here's how people, they call these epistles or letters, and there are what are called church epistles. That would be like the book of Romans, the book of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, on and on and on. And then you have what they call general epistles, okay? And so that's where you would get this whole stack right here in our New Testament. So watch this. If you have four, one book of history, one book of prophecy, four, five, six, and you have how many books in the New Testament? How many books in the New Testament? 27. So if I have six from 27, how many, how many do I see in the epistles? 21, bo 21 books, 21 letters, all right? So do you get it? Okay, now when you think about the rule that we're talking about tonight, God saw that the preservation of his word through the process of what we're talking about tonight, which is called canonicity or canonization. How many of you have heard the word canonization? Anybody? Okay, more of you than I thought. Okay, that's good. So canonization is, as you see there, it is it, it literally means a straight edge or a ruler. Now remember, the Bible tells us to rightly divide the word of truth. So this is something that we, we've used many times here at the church when we're building something. This is a straight edge. This particular one's made out of metal. I like it because if we hold it down on something, you know, then, then we, can, we can get a nice straight line and then we can make a straight cut. This is a straight edge. And that's, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about canonicity. The, the word literally means a, a straight edge or it means a ruler. Now, again, there's, there's different ways when it comes to rulers. This is a nice one that I like that that's, we use quite a bit around here. So when you talk about canonization, the rule of our Bible, it's very important for us to understand what canonization of God's word is. Now, there in your notes, I think I gave you this, canonization is the term that we use to describe how the books of the Bible came together as one volume, or here's the word, as a canon. Now, it's not C-A-N-N, it's just C-A-N-O-N, okay? It's a little bit of a different word. It's not the, the kind of thing you shoot stuff out of, all right? Shoot, shoot a ball out of so canon, the word canon is translated in the Bible by this word, rule, R-U-L-E, all right? Anybody want to read tonight? I gave it there in your, in your outline, Galatians 6.16. Anybody want to read that? Anybody? Nobody wants to read tonight? Ms. Flynn, Galatians 6.16. So it, as many as walk according to this what? Rule. All right. Does anybody want to read Philippians 3.16? Nevertheless, whereto 
Yes, Paul's writing to those in Philippi. Let us walk by the same what? Rule. Let us mind the same thing. So notice there in both of those verses, and and there are other places, but you find the word there is the word rule. When it comes to this matter of canonicity, now pictorially, if it it was going to paint a picture, okay, notice here that the word canon refers to a measuring rod. Did any of you, when you were a kid growing up, or maybe you did it as a parent, uh, have your kids stand maybe at a doorway or something and draw a line at the top of their head and write their age there? Did anybody do that? Or maybe when you were a kid, you did that? And and it became a, a measuring rod to where you could look at that and you could say, wow, look at, look, that's how tall you were when you were five. You know, look how tall you were when you were thin, you know? And, and, and sometimes when you look at the Word of God and we talk about as a picture, the word canon refers to a measuring rod. Now, theologically, the word refers to the group of books that have been recognized as authoritatively God's Word by meeting the criteria that had been established. Now, we're going to talk about that, but there's a, a certain criteria that remember now this is if it's god's word then whose criteria do you think it is it's god's because the bible's not the book of man it's the book of god so god established these certain criteria we're going to get into this a little bit but tonight as we think about this the books of the bible that you have you hold one book in your hand but look at this aren't you glad you don't have to carry around 66 books can you imagine coming to church <laughs> you know yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. I've seen, uh, anybody ever seen the, the Bible in Braille? The entire, one time we had a guy that came to our church, and, he, and brought, he brought in the Braille Bible. I forgot how many volumes it was just for the one Bible because it takes so many pages to accomplish what we have in our nice, small, little Bible that we carry with us. But see, what we have is we have one volume. We have what is known as the canon of scriptures. So here's what I, I, I want you to get this, because as you think about this, the books of the Bible today we have are canonized. That means that after rigorous review, it has been determined that these books, these 66 books that we have in our Bible, that they are the holy scriptures, that they are the word of God. See, they had to meet that criteria criteria, or they would not be included in the Word of God. But see, they did meet that. So here's the question that I gave you is, how did the Bible come together then as we know it today? Well, there's two ways that I want you to see here. Notice, first of all, the prophets wrote the words of God. Now, we talked about this. Does anybody remember what theological term that was called the writing down, the recording of the word of God. Anybody remember? Starts with an I. Inspiration. Okay. So notice here's a verse tonight is, is the Bible says in Exodus 24, 4, Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Now you have to know God's not pleased if God gives 50 words to his prophet to write down and the prophet only writes 30. Because listen, We need all of what God has to say. We need to know what all of what God wants for us. And uh, and we've joked about this a little bit, and I know that she's very, very passionate about it. But here's the thing is, when you go from one language to another, 
There's, there's no two languages in the world that perfectly correlate one with the other because in some languages it takes more words or less words to accomplish the same idea, the same thought. You understand what I'm saying there? So, so sometimes, you know, you, you have to do that to accomplish it. For instance, when we look at 2 Timothy 3.16 in our Bible, in our English Bible, it says all Scripture, here it is, is given by inspiration of God, that whole phrase. But when God gave His Word in the Greek, here's the word He used. Did you hear what I said? The Word. The Word was theonoustos. One word, but in English, now they didn't change the Word of God. It was there. It was, it was included. The meaning was there, but it took that to accomplish that that was what God had said. And it's important that we understand when we look at the Bible that the prophets, as we think about the Bible coming together, the prophets wrote the words of God. And then look at secondly, they not only wrote it, but they were the recipients of this direct revelation from God. God gave them his words. These were precise words. God knew exactly what he wanted. That, listen, that's why I know I get irritated when people start tampering with the word of God. And I think to myself, I wonder how God feels. Now, part of it is I know because he's given us a couple verses in the Bible that says you shouldn't take away from or add to the word of God. And there, there, there's, there, there's going to be some, some people someday that are going to stand before God. I wouldn't want to be one of those people that has tampered with the Word of God. Now, I get around some people, and, and here's what they've done is, and, and they, they try to get you to think this, where they'll take like the name Jesus. How many of you like the name Jesus? It's become very special to me. Can I tell you, I would, if God gave the, the word Jesus, I would never, ever, ever, ever substitute a personal pronoun, he, for the name of Jesus. I would never do it. But see, there are people today, they say, well, listen, you know, people should know who it's about. Or I want to shorten it, or it's just too difficult. No, no, no. We don't change the Word of God. God was very precise when it came to His words, and the prophets wrote down those. Listen to this, the Old Testament Hebrew canon, that as it was given, it was kept meticulously by the Jews. They kept God's Word. The tribe of Levi was given responsibility of being the keepers of the law. They kept the word of God. Look at Deuteronomy there and you know it's Deuteronomy 31, 26. Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God that it may be there for a witness against thee. See, the Levites took it very seriously. Why? Because God had placed it in their care and their keeping. It was their watch. Listen, you know this is how I feel about it. I'm here in 2019, not only as a Christian, but as a pastor. And this is my watch to make sure that no one messes with the Word of God. I'm not a Levite, and you aren't either. But listen, God has given us the sacred responsibility of making sure that no one 
is tampering with the word of God or changing what thus saith the Lord. I hope you understand that tonight and how important it is because look, if, if we allow them to start changing it, here's the question, where does it end? It, it literally becomes a Pandora's box. Where do you draw the line? There's nowhere to draw the line. So we, as we think about the Word of God and this canonicity, it's not, listen, this is not a subject stick around, hey, what do you think of canonicity? We don't really sit around and think about it, but it's so important for us to understand how the Bible came together. Listen to this statement. Canonicity could not have been done without the use of precise rules and standards. And the reason is because they were handling the Word of God. Now, I've stood here and I've, I've shared on Wednesday nights and maybe at different times about some of our missionaries and, and some of the Bible translations that we support on a monthly basis. And I talk about how that they, they will meticulously take the Word of God and they, they'll do a translation project so that some, a, a people group in a different language can have the Word of God in their own language. And, and I've talked about the process, and I'm going to give that to you tonight, this, this entire process of all that has to go through. Listen, it is a stringent process, but the, the only way God's going to bless that Bible version is if it is God's Word. That's why people say, well, what kind of Bible do you use? Well, I use, I use the King James Version of the Bible because I believe, I believe that it's God's word for the English-speaking people. I believe God's hand of blessing has been upon it. I believe it's a proven fact. I can, I can give you things out, even outside of what we'll do tonight. But, you know, I know people use different versions. It's not for me to tell you. Now, our church has always been a King James Version church. And, and we don't apologize that for that. We tell people that, but we, I don't put somebody down because they use a different version. But listen, I'd rather have what is an accurate translation of the Word of God. And see, when they, when, when they were compiling, creating the canon, they were handling the Word of God. Now, let me give this to you tonight. I'll break it down just like this right here, okay? The Old Testament will go from the Old Testament into the New Testament. So number one, write down the rule of the Old Testament the rule, the measuring rod, okay? As the Old Testament books were written, God used three institutions to preserve his word. Three institutions. The Old Testament. Okay, here's the first one. Write it down. God used the home to preserve his word. Somebody want to read Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 and 7? What's that? Teach your children. Anybody got that? Want to read it? Yeah, that pretty much sounds like your whole day, doesn't it, Jeannie? I mean, it sounds to me like from the moment you get out of bed until the time you go to bed at night, just about everything you do, especially if you have children, is you're supposed to be teaching them where does God put the responsibility of the Word of God. Keeping the Word of God is on the home. Now, what have we done as a country and as a people and as a world? We place a responsibility on the church. We place a responsibility on the school, we know the school's not going to teach the Word of God. That's, that's been proven since the 60s, right? 
I mean, it's, 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 it, they wonder why yet again yesterday another school shooting, another young person lost their life. It's all the fruit of removing God's word from the schools. But listen, the, the responsibility is not on the school. The responsibility is on the home. And one of the institutions God has used in the Old Testament to preserve his word is the home. God instructed the fathers. Look at the second thing that God used. The second institution to, to preserve the Old Testament, God used spiritual leaders to preserve the word of God. A priest and scribes. They were responsible for carefully copying and protecting God's word. Now again, think about this. Has any of you guys ever, I encourage some people from time to time, any of you ever written portions of the Bible, like took out a, maybe a notepad and wrote, opened your Bible and then wrote the Word of God? Anybody ever done that? If you ever, if you ever want to get to know your Bible better, you'll get to know your Bible a whole lot better. If you, now, I've had people say, well, why should I write it? I already have it. You're missing the point. Now, this was back in a day where they didn't have the printed page. So remember, every copy of the Word of God that people had, someone had to write it out. That's where the scribes and, and those that were entrusted, they not only had to write it out, but they also had to protect it. Now, have you ever, uh, I used to, I had this, this hard to believe, back in the mid to late 90s when I was in Bible college, I had an instructor in Bible college, and this was computers, I mean, we had computers, but this guy was old school, and when we did our research papers for him, he wanted us to handwrite. And, and, and it, was, it had to be one piece of, of loose leaf paper with the, with the lines on it. it had to, we had to observe the, the left-hand margin on the paper. We had to start writing on the first line. Now, when he said first line, he didn't mean below the first line. He meant on top of the first line. And we had to write all the way to the edge of the page and then go to the next line. When you got to the bottom of it, you had to write all the way to the, the corner. And he even said this, he goes, even if you have to make something up to get all the way over there, then turn it over and do the same thing on the back. And he told us we had to do that. Now, when you handwrite something, you make mistakes. You ever done that? Yeah, aren't you glad they came out with whiteout? They came out with, now they've got that, that it's almost like a tape or something. And, and, and that's what you do. Listen, we weren't allowed to do that in his class. If you made a mistake, no whiteout. He had to start all over again. And he took off points. If he saw whiteout, he wouldn't even keep your paper. Man, I'm he was tough. He was a tough teacher. I liked him, though. You know why? Because we were writing papers about the We weren't writing the Bible. We were writing papers that I think one class I had was the book of Hebrews. Now, think about this. The scribes were writing the Word of God. Do you think they ever made a mistake? If they did, then probably they had to throw away. See, why do you think some of these, these erroneous, these versions that had errors in them, they were discarded later on, they were found by somebody and said, oh, this must be the Word of God. They found it in a trash can somewhere. You know, that, that's exactly what, what, what's happening. When you think about the Word of God, God entrusted and He used these spiritual leaders, priests and scribes, to carefully copy and protect God's Word. Look at the Bible says in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, verse 9. Nehemiah, which is the Tertius, Tertius the, 
and the Ezra, the, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy unto the Lord your God, more not nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. See, they were, they were responsible for recording it, for copying it, for protecting the word of God. How did God, uh, how did God uh, preserve his word in the Old Testament? Well, God used the institution of the home. He placed it upon the fathers. God used spiritual leaders. He used the priests and the scribes. Notice the third thing. This, this may be something you hadn't seen before, but it's, here it is. It's Bible. God used the government to preserve the word of God. Now, I still believe with all my heart that America was founded as a Christian nation. I still believe that. I believe there's enough evidence to prove that we were founded as a Christian nation. But when you look at the, at the scriptures, here's an interesting thing. Kings were commanded to make their own copy of God's word. Well, how did they do that? They, they got a hold of the copies made by the priests and the scribes. Look at Deuteronomy 17, 18. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priest and the Levites. So God, God allowed even government to preserve his word in the Old Testament days. Now throughout the centuries, the books of the Old Testament, they were kept or preserved and God's word was propagated. It was given out just like God said. If you go, if you, if you, and we won't take time tonight, but I think it's Daniel chapter 9 and verse number 2. The Bible records that Daniel was able to go look at the record. In other words, he looked at the, at the copy of the Word of God, and Daniel was able to access the record that was being kept, the words of God. So the words of those that were known to be prophets of God in the Old Testament, those words were recorded. Now listen to this carefully. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. The words of the prophets were recorded and they were added to what they could or what we would call the canon of the Old Testament. Now remember, if this was Old Testament times, God's word wasn't complete. God was still giving new revelation. Are you with me? See, right now, God's word is complete. That verse that I said earlier about adding to or taking away from the canon of Scripture. Now, again, the only thing you're going to add to the word of God is what is God's word. So as God gave more, think about this. As Moses wrote these five books, a lot of these books didn't even exist. So see, all of these later became a part of that same, what eventually became the canon of the Old Testament. Does that make sense to you? So, so look, God's word was in the developing stages. God continued to give his word. So listen to this, the, the time of the law and the prophets. Remember the chart that I showed you there? The law, the prophets, and the writings? The time of the law and the prophets, it closed, it came to an end about 400 B.C. Okay, about 400 B.C. So again, this time period up to here, it came to a close about 400 B.C. So that's the Old Testament, all right? Now write down number two, write inter-testament. 
I-N-T-E-R, intertestament. This is something a lot of people don't think about, but what is this? This is the, the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. See, in our Bibles, you turn one page, you've gone from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But there was a period between the Old Testament and the New Testament about, of about 400 years. This time period was known as the silent years. Now, the reason it was called the silent years is, watch this. Remember, the first thing we talked about was revelation. Does anybody remember what revelation is? What is it? Prophecy. It's God revealing what to us? Truth, right? Truth that we, wouldn't, we would have not known if God wouldn't reveal it to us. Are you with me? Okay. So this is a Bible study. We're studying the Bible tonight, all right? So, so revelation. Look here. How much of this is revelation? All of it, right? Okay. So, so here it is. For all these years, God had been revealing truth in the Old Testament time through the prophets. Okay. But boom, all of a sudden, God goes silent. Not one word from God. Can you imagine what it would be like in your home between husband and wife? Don't say it'd be a better thing, all right? 400 years went by. Not one word from God. Can you imagine? Look here, at this point in history, what people were thinking. God's dead. God doesn't love us. God doesn't care about us. Why isn't God sharing any new revelation why hasn't God said anything to us so it was during this time period the intertestament period that there was no revelation from God so guess what happens man starts writing and man wrote what is called the apocrypha now I want you to look at this the apocrypha roots of the new testament notice the dates the word apocrypha means secret, means hidden, concealed. That's what the actual word means, apocrypha. Some of you have understand this, understood what the apocrypha is. I've, I've got here in the notes. It is the collection of Jewish historical books covering the time between the Testaments, Old Testament and New Testament. That's what the apocrypha is. Now, as you think about this, put that... What else do I have there, Mike? I don't remember what else I gave you there. Is there something else for that? Go, go back to that one slide you had. There you go. So look at this. With the book of Malachi, that's the last book in the Old Testament, right? So it says here, between Malachi and Matthew, God did not give to the Hebrew people any further revelation. For this reason, this period is sometimes called the 400 silent years. Though silent in the sense of communicating new revelation to Israel... God was still at work during that period doing what? Fulfilling his prophetic word. Now, although they didn't really know what God was doing, God is always working behind the scenes. And so what's, what's happening here is there's no new revelation from God, but this time period was an interesting period because that man began to write things and they were, listen, they were historical Okay? And so it says here that they were not written by prophets, and because they were not written by a prophet, they were not believed to be the inspired word of God. 
That's why they're not in our Bible today. See, the books that met the criteria are the words that God gave. That's the criteria. So these books, and I, I think I gave this to you in your notes, four things. Look at this. The Apocrypha was never recognized by Israel as Scripture. Israel never recognized, hey, this is the Word of God. That was the nation of Israel. Look at the second thing. It was never recognized by Christ. Jesus never recognized the Apocrypha. Thirdly, it was not recognized by the first church. Now, when I say the first church, I'm talking about the first New Testament church when Jesus came and established the church. They didn't recognize it as the Word of God either. But then look at this fourth statement. The Apocrypha does teach false doctrine. That's what it does. When you start to read it and study it, it teaches things that are not biblical. When the Jews in the New Testament, listen to this, when the, the Jews in the New Testament, now remember, there was 400 years of silence. But we all know, if you study the Word of God, I mean, we just, we just uh, went through the time period historically many years ago that Jesus died on the cross. What did the Jews in the New Testament did? They refused to acknowledge that Jesus was the Son of God. So when that happened, here's what God did. He raised up the apostles to go into the Greek world to have his New Testament scriptures preserved for us. So here's what God did. God says, look, all these people that, that I had to record my Old Testament, my words, because they have refused to believe that my son is the son of God, that he gave his life for the entire world, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to use a group of people called the apostles to record and preserve my words in the New Testament period. All right? So as you think about that, let me give you some thoughts about that. As we think about God bringing us into the New Testament era, what was God doing? This is something interesting. God was setting the stage for the coming of his son into this world. Yes, sir. Well, I'm going to get into that in just a minute, so that how you can know, all right? So, so here's the thing is, God's setting the stage. Let me just get, I'm going to go through this real quick, but, and it's not in your notes if you want to jot any of this down. A lot of this is just history. You should know this. Let's talk for a second about God setting the stage for the coming of his son, the world powers, okay? Now, if you look historically, here's what you would find is the, the Persian Empire that was from 539 to 333 B.C., during that time period, here's what happened. The Jews returned to Palestine during that time period. At the end of the Persian reign, what empire took over was the Grecian Empire. From 333 to 167, well, who's the ruler during that time? Alexander the Great. Well, guess what happens? Alexander the Great actually is kind to the Jewish people. See, God's setting the stage for the coming of his son. Uh, what was predominant during the days of the Grecian Empire were two languages, no mistake here, the Greek language and the Aramaic language, which was the common language of the people in Palestine during the times of Jesus. So our Bible has uh, Hebrew in the Old Testament, it has Greek in the New Testament, and there are portions of Aramaic because it was the language of the day. So you find that after the Grecian Empire, it became, there was a time known as the period of the Maccabees. Now, the Maccabees were a people. It was a group of people. They were a ruling class. They were an aristocratic group of people. They ruled from 167 to 63 B.C. 
And it was because of their wickedness, there was a, a group of priests during that time that were very wicked. And so th th there, was, there was the uprising during this time where the Jews rallied against the corrupt priesthood of that time. And, and because of that, because they rallied against the, the Maccabean uh, time period, the temple worship for the Jew was restored during that time period. And then the last one was the Roman Empire, which the Roman Empire came into, into power about 63 B.C. and was in power to somewhere between 100 and 175 A.D. at the height of its, uh, height of its empire. Well, guess who came to the throne during the Roman Empire? Herod, or Herod the Great. And so Herod's on the throne, but guess who was born while Herod was on the throne? Jesus was. So here, you look at how Christ comes into the world, but look, God set the stage. The Bible says in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son into the world. Now, let me give you another aspect. I'm just trying to get you to think because Old Testament, we're in the, this intertestament period. Here's another thing to think about is some of the religious and political groups or sects of the day, S-E-C-T-S. Now, this is important because when you read and start studying the gospel records, some of these groups, they came into being or they rose to prominence when? During the 400 years of silence. In other words, God's not in the picture as far as man is concerned. So who takes over when the cat's away, the mice play? And so what happens is all these people are jockeying for who's going to be in power. Okay, so let me give you some of these. I know you've heard this, the priesthood. The priesthood, when Jesus was born into this world, the priesthood was probably one of the most carnal priesthood that had ever been when Jesus was born into this world. Another group was the scribes. Now, again, we're talking about those that were entrusted with the word of God. There's another word the Bible uses called lawyers. That's not like we would think a lawyer today but it was a word that was used for them. They were entrusted with the word of God. And these people known as scribes, here's something. When Jesus came into this world, these people were entrusted with the word of God. Jesus is the son of God. But guess what? The scribes opposed Jesus. They didn't want nothing to do with Jesus. They didn't realize he was the word. So you have a carnal priesthood. You have the scribes that are opposed to Christ. Here's a group, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group of people that Jesus actually told them that they were barren and that they were condemned because they stood against Jesus. Everything about them was all about living by the law. It was a system of works. They took what God gave to his people, the nation of Israel, and they turned it into a system and they called it Judaism. You have to do this. You have to keep this. And by the way, there are still people living that way today that are not Jews. They're living their lives by doing this and by going here and by giving this. And so you have, you have the Pharisees. Here's another group. Have you read in the New Testament the Sadducees? Now, exactly. The Sadducees were liberals. They were very liberal and they were very paganistic. Very paganistic. Here's the sad point about the Pharisees and Sadducees. They butted heads. They wanted nothing to do with each other. They opposed each other. 
But when Jesus was put on trial for his life, they came together for the first time. You know why? Because they wanted Jesus out of the way so that they could rise over Jesus. This was all during the intertestament period and going into the New Testament era. All these groups, they all came into play. All right? Let me give you uh, just a couple more and we'll be done. You, you've heard of maybe the Herodians. Well, the Herodians, of course, the name Herod, they considered Jesus to be a threat to government. He was going to overthrow their government and they wanted to get rid of him so that there was no chance of that. And then you had the Sanhedrin. We all know that that was the highest ruling body of the Jewish people. They were the ones that really were the ones that put Jesus on trial and, and carried out the greatest miscarriage of justice ever in, in the history of mankind. And so those were some of the religious groups of the day. So when you think about the, the Word of God, the canon of Scriptures, you have the Old Testament, then you have, even though there's no books there, man tried to put some books there in that inter-Testament period. And then write it down, number three, the rule of New Testament. All right. So here we are, we go over into the New Testament. When the time came for the New Testament church to recognize which books were inspired of God, Okay, and which books were not. There were several considerations that had to be considered just like in the Old Testament. They were very similar to that. Let me give three of them to you, all right? The first question is, was it that book or letter or epistle, was it written by an apostle or someone who had direct contact with the apostles? Okay, And again, this is, this is not my criteria. This isn't something man's come up with. In other words, what, what, what you're trying to establish is this. Was there apostolic authority there? They say, well, isn't that based on man? Well, you have to remember, the apostles were directly ordained by Jesus for the purpose of spreading the truth. See, he, he, he entrusted that to them. That's why, that's why Jesus didn't give up on Peter. He had invested too much in Peter. And so when you look in the Bible, uh, who, the third gospel record was written by who? Luke. The book of Acts was written by Luke. Was Luke an apostle? No, he was a Gentile. But yet he was directly influenced by the apostles. He spent time with the apostle Paul, who was an apostle born out of due time. Luke, he was, he was one that was influenced. He had direct contact with the apostles. The, the Holy Spirit used Luke to record those two books in our Bible. Look here in your notes in Jude verses 17 and 18. Look at these words as Jude writes, Beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when, when, when Jude writes that, he goes on to say how that they told you that there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lust? When you read that, don't misunderstand what, what uh, Jude is writing there. Jude wasn't questioning what the apostles wrote. Here's what he was doing. He was reminding those Christians in that part of the world, Asia Minor, of what the apostles had already written, what they had already said. And see, God used him to write those words. So the first question when you think about, okay, what does belong in the New Testament? The first one is, is it something that's written by an apostle or someone that had direct contact with one of the apostles? Look at the second question. Is, were the writings consistent 
with the teachings of the Old Testament? Were they consistent with Christ? And were they consistent with the apostles? Now, here's a good example. Remember who the young man was that Paul uh, mentored and spent a lot of time with? There's a couple books in the Bible by his name. Timothy, Timothy, right? And so Paul, listen, Paul loved Timothy. Now, the Bible tells us, thinking about this, are the writings consistent with the teachings of the Old Testament? Are they consistent with Christ, consistent with the apostles? Well, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.15, from a child, Paul writes to Timothy, thou hast known what? The Holy Scriptures. Now, how is that possible? How could Timothy know the Holy Scriptures? Well, if you back up two chapters, look at 2 Timothy 1.5. The Bible says, then I, when I recall, call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice. You know what that means? That means Lois and Eunice were women of the scriptures. Well, look here. They didn't have the New Testament. So what was Lois and Eunice teaching Timothy? The Old Testament. You see the consistency there. They were teaching Timothy that the Messiah was going to come. Timothy had known that from his childhood growing up. They taught him those things. So look, there has to be a consistency. When you study the Word of God, look, I can tell you after 35 years, there is a consistency between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the New Testament and the Old Testament. God's Word is consistent. Think about how many things Jesus said. You know the portion in the New Testament where Jesus said, you have read in old times that it, has, it was said this, but I say unto you this. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to what? Fulfill it. Jesus himself was the fulfillment of the law. Look, why would Jesus destroy something that God gave? He doesn't. Jesus isn't about to to say, look, uh, you know, people say all the time, well, listen, we have something better today. What is that saying about what God's word was years ago? That it wasn't good? It wasn't God's work? No, no, God gave his word. There has to be the consistency, and that's what you see when you look at the New Testament of the Bible. Here's the third question is, is they ask this, are these letters or the books, are they authoritative in nature? In other words, what is the authority? Now, again, if it's God's word, then who is the authority? God is, right? So when you look at the writings of Paul, these, these letters to the churches, the church epistles, Here's what you'll find if you study it out is that Paul's writings, the letters of the Apostle Paul, were received immediately as being authoritative. They received these. Those churches received these. Why? Because God gave it to Paul and Paul gave it to the churches. Look, folks, I'm going to tell you something. When I got saved, I didn't have to sit around and question, is this God's word or not? I just know by faith it is a word of God. I believe that with all my heart, that we have God's Word. Now, when you think about this matter of canonicity, let me try to bring it all together. Write this down. Is a couple of thoughts here. One is, let me give you what's called the criteria. I've already covered this, but I'm going to give you a quick little overview of the, the standard or the rule of canonicity. Four things has to be there. Number one, there has to be apostolicity. Now, it's a fancy word. It just means this. It has to be of an apostle okay, of an apostle. Secondly, now don't let this word throw you, Catholicity. 
say, whoa, our Bible's Catholic? No, no, no. The word means, anybody know? It means universal. In other words, what is it saying here? It's saying that the, these books are universally accepted. There's a consistency and agreement among them, okay? So it has to be of an apostle, has to be universally accepted. Number three is there has to be a consistency, a consistency. Let me finish this. There has to be a consistency. In other words, an agreement or a harmony. You ever heard of this, this statement, the harmony of the Gospels? Yeah, because you re- start to read those four accounts and watch this. They just fit together like hand in glove. There's a harmony there. And the fourth criteria is, I said just a minute ago, is authority. In other words, it has to be of God and it has to be recognized by God. So that's the criteria when it comes to what is included in the canon or the rule or our Bible. Now, here's a thought here. What are the stages of canonicity? Okay, When you think of, of this whole matter of canonization, how did they come about? I mean, you're holding it there in your hands. We have the end product. Okay? Let me give you five stages to get to this point. The first one is composing, composing of the Word of God. That means to write it down. Okay, So that's where it all begins. We, we said that that is called inspiration. Secondly is collecting. That means what they had to do was they had to gather all of the writings that God gave. Somehow they had to get them all together so that they could could sit down and they could go through the criteria to make sure that they were only including what was God's words, okay? Because remember, look, where, where uh, Moses wrote his and where Isaiah wrote his, they weren't in the same hotel when they wrote what they wrote, okay? They were in different places. So you have the composing, then you have the collecting. Thirdly, you have the comparing. Now, this is where you sit down. What's the best commentary on the Bible? There you go, the Bible. So you don't, you don't, need, don't need to get out somebody else's commentary. Uh, they might be helpful from, t- from time to time. But the be- best thing to compare Scripture with is Scripture. Okay. Sometimes people say, well, that verse right there, what does it mean? You know what I usually do? I usually try to go to the Word of God and see if I can find another Scripture to support that. If you look at most of my messages, that's exactly what I do. I'll go to one text, I'll preach from that one text, but I'll give you support verses that support that exact thing that I'm talking about right there or what passage that I'm preaching from. So look, you have the composing of it, you have the collecting of it, the comparing, finding the similarities, the agreements. Number four, you have the completing of the, of the, the canonicity, which is where, where they made it a whole. In other words, we call it the Bible. It's, a, it's the book of the Bible, the Holy Bible. How many books again is it? 66, all right? And then look at number five, and this has changed. But the last one is copying. In other words, reproducing the Word of God. Well, folks, listen, it's a wonderful thing that God's Word can be reproduced. Now, look, I'm not interested in making money. There's a lot of people who are merchandising the Word of God today. You know why? It's still the best-selling book in the world. And people know that they're going to make money if they, if they copy the Word of God. But listen, you know what we ought to be doing? We ought to be just giving it out. Because, look, we didn't do anything to get it. God gave it to us. And we ought to be sharing it with this lost and dying world. So, so you can see there the stages of the canonicity of the canon of scriptures. In other words, the canon of scriptures was assembled by the confirmation of God through the apostles 
and faithful believers of the first century. Because look at this, when you think about the Old Testament, they were not compiling and comparing in the Old Testament. They were writing. When it got to the first century is when they sat down. And by the way, it wasn't the Catholic Church that put the Bible together, all right? When they, had the, when they had the Council of Carthage, it wasn't to determine that they had the canon of scriptures. They already had it. It was just to acknowledge that that was the 27 books that we now call the New Testament of our Bible. The Catholic Church is not the one that put the canon of scriptures together uh, compared to uh, some people want, want people to believe that. But listen, we're talking about canonicity, okay? The canonization of the Word of God along with what we've already covered, which is revelation and inspiration. All of these and what we're going to talk about next week, they're all important. Why? Because they all form the basis of our faith in the Word of God, which is the Bible. And if we want to know what the Bible has to say, it's very important that we know how it's put together and what the criteria was. Now, remember, the criteria is not ours. This isn't Bible Baptist churches. It's not Pastor Keeley's. This was God's criteria because if, look, it's this simple. If this book is not the Word of God, then it shouldn't be included. It should be left out. But I'll tell you this, that we have God's Word in its entirety. And what do we need to do with it? Read it, study it, and give it out. That's what we need to do. So if you have any questions, I don't want to keep you long tonight, but I'll stay around for just a minute if you have a question or two. But uh, I hope you're enjoying the study. We'll get into some more next week. So, sir? Uh, 44. 44? Yeah, 24, 44. 